Morning, everyone. Hope you're right this morning. Good to see you all here. A few notices before we begin. Um, um, I don't know whether everybody knows, certainly members should know, that um, in this church we donate a percentage of the giving at this church to various charities. And on the board in the uh, back room, there are, there's, there are displays explaining who we give money to. Um, and one of the charities that we've donated to for a long time, John might be able to tell me how long, but anyway, a long time, um, is the Nakalabi Junior School in um, Uganda um, via Friends of Asset Uganda. And we have, one of the things that we've donated most recently and over many years is food for the children that go to the school and also the children in the orphanage. Because actually, if you've got to walk a long way to school and you haven't had any breakfast, you're not going to learn much when you get there. In fact, you might not even go because you might not feel you have the energy to get there. All of this rambling on is to explain that the children of um, Nakalabi have made some bracelets that they are giving to people as a thank you gift for the um, donations given over many years that we're continuing to do. And this is just, this is one of them, which is the one I've nabbed, because it matches the earrings that Lydia brought me back from Africa um, uh, when she was in um, Djibouti. But I've got a box full of them that they have delivered to us to, as a thank you to the people in this church. So they will go over there, I think, during the summer. But what I'll do is I'll sit on the sofa in the back room with the box, and perhaps people would like to come and choose one. They're all different colours. Demonstration. I think I've probably got about 25 of them, and they fit everybody because they're twirly. So, uh, and they really are lovely. Lydia was just explaining to me how they make them because she saw them being done in, when she was in Djibouti. They are actually made of recycled paper, most of the beads. The large beads are actually made of thin strips of recycled paper, maybe magazines, maybe you know, just things that they found on the street, so free, effectively, to the people making them. And, um, and then they, they roll them up and turn them into these very beautiful um, beads that they varnish. They look like beads, but actually the majority of them are recycled, um, recycled paper. What I'd really like to do is to be able to take a photo, perhaps, of a few people with them on so that we could send it... I could then email them and say... And they could share that with the children to say thank you very much for, um, for the gifts that they've given to us. Because we tend to get pictures of, of them, but they don't actually get anything back from us. So um, if people are willing to do that, that would um, be lovely. I'd just like to read you one little line. Sorry, Kate, bear with me. Um, the Mary J- Mama Jane family, who are the people that distribute it, wishes to acknowledge with much fa- thanks the food donation given to Mama Jane Institution through Afrinspa and Friends of Asset Uganda in the UK. This has helped to improve on the diet of the children in the home, and they are now very healthy and stronger. The children are proud and thankful for the good Lord who has managed to use Asset UK to also deliver something good for the vulnerable and poor. May the Almighty God reward you all for the efforts you render in helping the African children. So um, come and see me afterwards to, um, to get your bracelet. Thank you. Thank you. Now, talking of gifts, it is present season at the moment, isn't it? I wonder whether people have been out buying presents for different people, possibly teachers, people who have been helping us. I know that we've been finding a variety of gifts that could possibly be given to a number of different teachers and people who have helped. It's it's a nightmare, isn't it? But it's great because you give gifts to people often at this time of year because they've done something, because they've helped you, because they've been kind to you, because they're your teacher. And you give them gifts. 
And I was thinking about gifts and thinking we often give gifts to people as a sign of appreciation for something that they've done. And God does the same thing. But God gives us gifts not because of something that we've done, but just because he loves us, because he wants to, because he thinks we're wonderful. We give gifts often because someone's done something, but God gives gifts just because he loves us so much. One of the gifts that he's given us is the world in which we live, and we can look at it and think, what a mess, what is happening? But we can also look at it and think, what an amazing creation. When we leave here today and the sun is shining, hopefully, we can look around and see what God has given us just because he loves us and he wants to give us gifts. We're going to worship this God who gives us things because he loves us. And we're going to start by singing together. So let's stand and sing our first song together. It's good to know when we sing things like that, that this is the truth that we sing. We look at the news and we think, that can't be true, because look at all the death and bloodshed, but this is the truth. Um, Christ has risen and love has won. We're going to carry on our, I was going to say ramble, but I don't know where that's the right word, through the book of Joshua um, as we reach chapter 6. Much has happened, and now we've finally reached that moment when the walls of Jericho will come down. So we're going to act it out and sing a song. No, we're not. (laughs) You know, that's what you normally do, isn't it? But no. I'm going to read from Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites, No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March round the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march round the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets... Make the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and make seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march round the city, with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests, who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the Ark of the Lord carried round the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forwards, marching before the Ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the Ark of the Lord, while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day they marched round the city once and returned to camp. 
They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time round, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in our house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Many of you will know that I am a little bit of a murder mystery fan. don't really get much opportunity to watch it these days, but I used to, you know, be in all of the murder mysteries, trying to solve them. Never could, but, you know, it's worth a go. But one of them that I never got into, that lots of people liked when I was younger, was Columbo. I know loads of people like Columbo, but I never liked Columbo. And the reason I didn't like Columbo was because in the very first scene, they would show you who the murderer was or who the thief was, or who the person was who committed the crime. You'd see it all done, and you'd see who it was, and then the rest of the programme was about Columbo trying to work it out. And I always thought, oh, what's the point? We've already seen who's done it. Why do I now need to watch someone work out who I know who's done it, and I can't use my brain to try and work it out? So I never really liked Columbo. I know that wasn't the point of it. But, you know, I like to be involved thinking that I can solve it when really I can't. But with Columbo, you can't because you know who's done it. There's no suspense. It's all solved within the first scene because you know what happened before it's even begun. And, you know, here, as I read chapter 6 of the book of Joshua, I find some similarities and I confess to being a bit disappointed. This great fall of the walls of Jericho, and immediately I'm disappointed. After all, it is perhaps the most famous chapter in the whole book because it describes this wonderful thing that happened under the leadership of Joshua. We have, if you like, been building up to this since the beginning of chapter 1 with the commissioning of Joshua to start with and the crossing of the River Jordan and the spying out of Jericho and the preparations of the Israelite army. We've been getting to this point the point when the people of God are about to see if they can defeat the might of the great city of Jericho. We heard at the beginning of chapter 5 how because of the crossing of the Jordan and probably memories of the crossing of the Red Sea years earlier, that all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast melted in fear and no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. And so now we read at the beginning of chapter 6 that the gates of Jericho are securely barred because of the Israelites, because everyone's afraid, because they know that God is with them. Jericho is scared, and the leaders are scared, and the people are scared, because they've heard how great the God of Israel is. And so Jericho has been shut up. No one is allowed in, and no one is allowed out. And yet the people of God, to claim the promised land, must defeat this great city. 
So at the beginning of chapter 6, the scene is set. The people of God must take the great walls of Jericho. And my anticipation is as it is at the beginning of every murder mystery that I ever watch. I'm thinking, great. And then the Bible goes and pulls a Columbo on me. Because just as I'm wondering if the people of Israel can really stand against the might of the Canaanites, just as I'm wondering if Joshua can really lead them and pull this mighty feet off, just as I'm wondering how this conundrum is going to play out, the Lord turns to Joshua and reveals the conclusion. See, he says, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Right! that's that then. God's delivered it. The answer is there before the chapter has begun. But interestingly, as I read these words, all joking aside, as I read the word of God at the beginning of chapter 6, rather than ruining the story for me, I find I'm intrigued and a little bit encouraged. After all, Jericho this great city with its tall walls and impenetrable defence is shut. It's closed. There's no way in. There's no way out. It's not like there's a little back door somewhere. And the Israelites, far from being a trained army who have spent their whole lives preparing for this moment, are a group of people who have spent the last 40 years wandering in the wilderness, eating from the ground entering into a few odd battles here and there, wondering what they should do next. And yet here God's saying, look, I've delivered Jericho, this famous city, with its tall walls, into your hands. And I find myself thinking, well, how on earth is that going to happen? How on earth is God going to deliver on that promise? And to be fair, the way he does it is fairly remarkable. It's even more remarkable than the things that have been happening in British politics over the last few weeks, isn't it? For a start, it involves trumpets and marching, trumpets and marching, trumpets and marching times 13, and then shouting, followed by a spontaneous wall collapse without a rock being thrown or a sword being drawn. It is the most amazing story. There is fighting, there is warfare, there is bloodshed, but the focus of the battle is not on the fighting and the war and the bloodshed. It's on the walls. It's on the conquest of a city that is impenetrable. There's one verse which tells us about the battle itself. Verse 20 says, The Israelites devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. There's one horrendous verse in this passage. But the main focus is on the other 20 that tell us how God brought about the destruction of the walls of Jericho. And the amazing thing about those 20 verses is that it shows that actually it was God. Whether this story be an actual historical incident that actually took place or a fictional illustration to prove the point, we don't really know. But the amazing thing is that the Bible shows that all of this happened because of God. For instance, we're told the priests who walked around the walls of Jericho ahead of the Ark of the Covenant were to do so while blowing their trumpets. This wasn't, of course, referring to them walking around telling people how wonderful they were and how great they'd been doing things. Or it wasn't a brass band making a joyful noise. 
to the Lord, it was referring to them blowing the ram's horns, which were very significant, as they were often used in Jewish celebrations, and also in the temple, when the people were worshipping God. During this time, what would happen is the priests would blow the ram's horn, just like they did around the walls of Jericho. And when they did this, it was to signify that in that part of the worship, God was speaking. So the ram's horn signifies God speaking to his people. So as they marched around the walls of Jericho, and as Joshua ordered the people to be quiet, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, the only sound, in effect, that could be heard for six and a half days was the trumpets, or if you like... The voice of God. The people marched round the walls of Jericho for six days to the sound of the trumpets, which signified the voice of God. It was only on the seventh that they joined in themselves. And not only that, but the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark that signified the presence of God among his people, was to take pride of place central in the parade wasn't to be kept back at camp so that it could be safe or to be hidden from view so the people of Jericho wouldn't throw things at it or or damage it or at the back of the march that was protected. It was to lead the march behind the priests who blew the trumpets of the voice of God. You see, the amazing thing about this story of the fall of the walls of Jericho is that Jericho was defeated, was not defeated by tiny Israel because they did something clever, but rather... It was defeated by God, because God was in control. Because not only did he tell Joshua that the victory would happen before the battle had begun, not only did he reveal that he was going to give Jericho into Joshua's hands, not only did he reassure him that everything would work out, he also took his place at the centre of the action. The ark was at the centre, right in the middle of his people. And he shouted his presence through the trumpets all the way round until eventually the people were invited to join in and the walls of Jericho fell. And you know, as I read this story, whether it be real or fictional, I am struck once again by the total commitment of God to his people. I'm struck by the presence of God in the heart of the biggest problem that Israel had faced since they'd entered the Promised Land. I'm struck by how integral God is to the victory that finally came to pass. Because in all honesty, it was only by the hand of God that this event happened in the first place. Even to the point that the city and all that was in it were to be devoted to the Lord. Not taken as plunder. It wasn't that Israel was going to go in when the walls had collapsed and take their reward as soldiers normally would. They were to devote everything to God, either by destroying it so that it couldn't get away, or by saving it and offering it to God in the temple. Because at the end of the day, this was God's battle. One that the Israelites were invited to join in with, but one that God was in control of, and one that God was victorious in. And you know, when I read this, when I read this amazing story that we grow up learning in Sunday school, and that we act out and march around and sing songs about... And then I think about our lives as adults and the things that we face. You know, our battles, our difficulties, the walls that can seem too high for us to climb. It makes me wonder, reading this, why we spend so much time fighting our own battles. 
Why we spend so much time battling to solve our own problems. Why we struggle along so slowly on our own. When we have a God, clearly from this passage, who cares much more than we do about the things we face. And is desperate not only to stand with us, but to lead the way in our difficulties and in our battles until we can gain victory. Do you know when I was reading this, this story came to mind that I hadn't thought about for ages. And it was when my granddad used to come and visit us, my nan and granddad, and my granddad and I used to go out and run around the field. Well, my granddad didn't run around, but, you know, we'd run around. And when it was snowing, we'd go sledging together. And I remember this one incident where we built this course down this hill, which was brilliant, and I was sledging down. And then I decided I wanted to build some ski jumps, you know, because seen it on telly, thought it'd be good. So I tried to get snow together and I was gathering all this and I was trying to push it up the hill to make these little bumps so I could have a few ski jumps in my run. And my granddad was standing there and I went, oh, can you help me? Because, you know, it's really hard. And he stood there and he went, you're never going to do it. And I said, why not? I want to build some bumps. And he went, you can't push snow up a hill, Kate. It's never going to happen. And I went, well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And he sat down. And he watched me, and I struggled and struggled and struggled, and occasionally I looked up and he had a little smile on his face, and I struggled and struggled, and in the end, I had to admit that my granddad was right. You can't push snow up a hill. It's very hard. And I couldn't build it, and I collapsed, exhausted and frustrated, and I never got my jumps, because I was battling on my own. It was hard work. It was tough. And you know, a lot of the time... I think we can see life a little bit like that. Because sometimes it feels like, you know, yes, we have a God who loves us. Yes, we have a God who created us. Yes, we have a God who cares for us. But when we're facing a tall wall or we're struggling with a a big battle for us, sometimes we can think that God simply sits back and watches us. It might not necessarily say you can't do it and laugh at us, But, you know, he sits back and we sometimes ask him for advice and we sometimes ask him to come and help us and he sometimes steps in if we're desperate. But I don't think we always see him as a God who can necessarily deliver the victory or indeed a God who is in control and longs to fight our battles for us. And, you know, of course God calls us to join in with him just like he did the people of Israel. But in reality, the amount that we are called to do in our battles and in our problems, the burdens that we are called to share are far smaller than the ones we often pick up and carry by ourselves. Because at the end of the day, we have a God not who sits back and watches us and offers advice and joins in now and again, but a God who wants to lead the way. A God who wants to say, this is what I'm doing, come on. Join in. We have a God who is victorious, a God who knows the ending before the program has even begun. And more importantly, we have a God who cares far more than we do about the things that we're struggling with and the problems that we face. And so he is willing and able to take his place at the centre of the action. And of course, this doesn't mean that life is easy. Joshua would tell you that as he carried on with his journey. But it does mean that in all that we face, in all the problems and situations of the world and of our lives, if we listen carefully, 
if we take a step back and listen, instead of seeking to solve all the problems ourselves, if we listen, we will hear the voice of God, just like the Israelites did for six days. We will hear God's voice in the midst of our battles, and we will be able to follow him. And when he asks us, then we can join in, so that one day we can share in that victory that we sang about. One day we can live knowing that everything is all right. This is the word of the Lord. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. May we be people who are guided and led by the Spirit of God, who know that it is by God's strength, by God's spirit, that we are transformed and changed. And may God bless us and keep us and walk with us. Amen. Please be seated.